Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. I'm Wendy, sex and love addict, by the way. Um, hi, good to see all of your faces. Uh, I found the Sober Sisters Talk podcast because I was being a whiner and complaining to my sponsor that all of the women with a lot of time that were in program when I came in went away and I was getting ready to date and I was like who the hell am I supposed to talk to now besides my sponsor and after getting tired of listening to myself complain for a while I thought you know what you just need to shut up and do something about it and so I did and I started searching and I found Sober Sisters Talk and I loved 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 the podcast and I was so happy um, to just find the podcast um, I got cleared to date. Went on my first date. The whole world shut down. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Now what? Um, and then they posted that they were going to be doing a Zoom meeting. And I was like, what? I get to see them and be in a meet with them? So um, it was very providential. And see, like God turned lemons into lemonade. And here I am today. So I'm very, very grateful to, to be here. Um, as Elizabeth said, I'm going to give you a little bit of my my background my family of origin kind of my childhood stuff um you know the seeds of my addiction um what it looked like I'm in my addiction and what happened in recovery how I got sober and kind of where I'm at today um and I did write some notes so you'll see me looking down because I like to keep on track and not go down lots of rabbit trails um so I've been in program about four years and I have, in a few months, on January 1st, I will have three years of sobriety in this program, um, which I am humbled and so grateful for. Um, as you can tell in my voice, I get choked up. I never thought that that was going to be possible for me. Um, so my family of origin, um, to give you a little background, we were very put together, family of four, um, you know, we were kind of a model looking, we were very cute. <laughs> um, you know, nothing looked wrong from the outside. You know, people, that was like the whole point was, you know, to have people think that we were perfect. And most of them did. Um, image was extremely important to my mother um, and still is to this day. Um, but behind closed doors, there was a lot of fighting and yelling and crying. Um, my mom was, um, you know, controlling, she still is controlling and a perfectionist. And she also was a rager. She would rage a lot. So there was always, um, you know, like this fear, like, Oh, don't, don't set her off, you know? And so there was a lot of tiptoeing around, um, you know, to keep the peace and keep things calm. Um, my dad was, is, is pretty emotionally unavailable and avoidant. Um, and, rather weak you know he just kind of always complied and we learned from him like that's what we should do if we wanted to keep mom calm 
Um, I have a sister, a younger sister. Um, she was very compliant. Um, she followed all the rules. She was very obedient and shy and good and did everything that she was supposed to do. Um, I was the wild child. Um, I was very joyful and exuberant and strong-willed, and that didn't go so well. <laughs> you know, I think it was appreciated at times. Other times, it was like, can you just shut up and like do what you're supposed to do? Um, you know, I, I don't blame my parents. I hear people say that all the time. They say, I don't blame my parents, and then you like rattle off a laundry list of what your parents did. And I think for everyone, like none of us got perfect parents. Um, my parents did do the best that they could. They were in their early, my mom was 22 when she had me. She didn't know how to be a mom. She just knew she wanted to be a mom. And so she did the best that she could with what she had, as we all do. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I needed. And that's okay. That's okay because now I'm an adult and I can um, learn to get my needs met on my own and take care of myself. Um, so my parents came from very broken homes um, with a lot of dysfunction. Um, they were both and still are, God bless them, very emotionally immature people. Um, but like I said, doing their best that they knew how to do. Um, they fought a lot and they still do. And it's still a challenge for me to stay out of it. Um, they fought especially a lot at night when we were in bed. I think because they thought, you know, we couldn't hear, but I eavesdropped like on every conversation and every fight. Um, and I would lay in bed as a little girl and stress out and fret about like my biggest fear as a little kid was that my parents were going to get a divorce because divorce, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties was not, necessarily the norm yet it's a lot more normal now but I remember I knew some friends who were from um, families that the parents had divorced and I just I was so scared of that and so I used to lay in bed and just like freak out and and fret over that possibility um, and so my coping mechanisms um, where I say the seed of my addiction was born um, I like to escape into fantasy and masturbation, especially. I discovered masturbation probably around seven or eight years old on accident. Um, and that became like my drug of choice. Like I knew that would take me to la la land and I wouldn't have to deal with all of the big adult feelings that I was having to, to deal with as a little kid. Um, as I got older, um, the fantasy was still alive and well with me you know I would obsess over teen like heartthrobs like Leif Garrett and Ricky Schroeder and <laughs> back now it makes me laugh but I would have like these whole elaborate like fantasies about these people and what we would do and you know most of it was very innocent because I didn't even know what sex was but um you know anything to escape my reality um and as I got older you know my mom um read a lot of those like trashy romance novels and I got into them and I was like whoa what is this and that really like rocket launched my my uh fantasy life um I grew up watching soap operas with my mom I remember hearing the the music from the young and the restless and that would like cue me to relax <laughs> and I would like lay there and and watch soap operas with my mom like a, zomb a little zombie um and it was just 
looking back now, like it just was fantasy land. And my mom liked it too. Like she's a fantasy addict probably, but um, so that's kind of how I grew up. I was very valued um, for my appearance. Image, as I said, was really, really big with my mom. And um, therefore there were a lot of expectations from me um, about my appearance. And I've always struggled with my weight since I was a little kid and um, shamed for my weight. Um, you know, I remember being in a dressing room and I was maybe nine or 10 years old in a dressing room trying on bathing suits with my mom. And she would be horrified if she heard me say this today because I know she doesn't remember. But she, I remember she got mad at me. She shamed me and told me I looked like I was six months pregnant. As a 10 year old, like, what do you do with that? And, you know, I still, I still remember it. So obviously it was like a big deal. Um, and then when I would lose weight, I would be praised. I would be praised and treated like, you know, I was the greatest thing ever and I was, I was pleasing to them, you know? Um, and that's what I wanted. So I, I got a into a real weird relationship with food. Um, the whole, I used to sneak food all the time. Like I was really, um, I was really sneaky about a lot of things in life when I was little, looking back, like no little kid should be that sneaky. Um, so at one point, I think I was around nine, somewhere between nine and 11, my mom decided it would be a great idea to take the whole family to a nutritionist, the whole family needed to like get on board and she needed to learn recipes and how to cook and we all needed to eat right well I knew it was all because of me because my sister was about this big around she was teeny tiny um, so I knew we were all having to go to this nutritionist for me and I remember vividly sitting in the waiting room while the nutritionist was talking to my parents alone my sister and I were in the waiting room and they had a water like a sparkless water jug out there and then they had, you remember that um, Lipton instant sweet tea? It would come in a jar. You just take a spoonful. I was eating that shit by the spoonful. It was straight sugar. Obviously, there was a problem. <laughs> you're the nutritionist and your kid is downing sugar in the uh, waiting room. Not, not exactly the best um, case scenario. Um, a little bit of background about my faith. I was raised Catholic. Uh, I went to Catholic school for eight years. Um, you know, I believed in God. I didn't have a deep faith. Um, looking back, you know, my parents didn't know or understand their faith. They just did it because that's what they were supposed to do. It was the right thing to do. Um, and then we moved. We I grew up in an area where my extended family, my grandparents, my great-grandmother was near. And, you know, we'd have to take my great-grandmother to church every Sunday and so we kind of had to go to church. Like there was no compromising, like we had to go. And then we moved right before I started high school, about 45 minutes to an hour away. And suddenly we didn't have to take Graham to mass anymore. So guess what? We all bugged out and we were like, forget it. We're not going to mass anymore. Um, and that was kind of it. My mom and I would talk about it every once in a while and say, oh, I feel kind of guilty because we don't go to church anymore, but it just doesn't feel the same here. And so we just kind of stopped going. Um, we moved and I went into public high school, which I'd never been in public school in my life. Um, I had suddenly 
a lot more freedom than I had ever had. I had free dress. I mean, that alone was like mind blowing to me. Um, and I discovered, cause I went to this school and I knew no one. Um, and so I'm looking around just observing everybody and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so far behind the eight ball. These kids were so advanced and I felt like a toddler um, because I was so you know, innocent compared to them. They'd been around the block a couple times already by the time they were freshmen, and I was like, I gotta catch up. Um, so I knew I had to fit in um, quickly, and I needed to make friends quickly. I wanted to be popular. Like, I had a lot of aspirations uh, for high school. And um, and so I did. I became a cheerleader. Like, I, I found a lot of friends. Um, I found my first boyfriend. I stalked him. That was the beginning of um, my stalking career, unfortunately. Um, I saw him. I didn't know a thing about him. I thought he was so cute, and I was going to find out where he lived and what his name was and who his family like, And I did, and I found out he lived a few blocks from me, so it was perfect. Um, we were together for nine months as 15-year-olds. I, I don't know that that's sane, but that's, that's uh, where we were at. Um, we were talking marriage. I've looked back on, you know, letters that we were writing to each other because, you know, I was on a restriction constantly because of how crazy I was in high school trying to fit in. And, um, we were talking marriage. Um, it was really intense, really heavy, hot and heavy. And, uh, we didn't have sex, but there was a lot of heavy petting. And I just thought, this is it. Like, I'm going to marry this guy. This is, He's everything I've ever wanted. Um, looking back, I was high a lot, a lot. Um, I didn't know what that was. I'd never felt that before. It was the first time I got a hit of that dopamine rush. Um, and it was intense for a 15 year or 14. I was 14, 14 year old. Um, and then he broke up with me out of nowhere, out of nowhere. Looking back, I think his dad was probably like, you know what, you're only 14 and uh you've been dating this girl and you're not having any other kind of a life at 14 it's probably not the best idea so he broke up with me for no reason and i came uh you know completely fell apart i was devastated it was very dramatic of course um and that was the beginning of my pattern that has played out throughout my life as a sex and love addict um that i'm going to get revenge and I'm going to get back at him and I'm going to make him hurt for what he did to me. Um, and I'm going to do a really good job. And so I found an older boy who was cooler than him and cuter than him and had a car, and, you know, and I remember my mom, we saw him in the grocery store one day and I pointed him out and she said, Oh no, he looks much too old for you. Well, that was like, ding, ding. He is the one. And in fact, I might, I might marry him, <laughs> you know, because remember, I'm a rebel who's going to do the exact opposite of what you tell me to do. Um, so I proceeded to have a really tumultuous relationship on and off for about six years with that, that older boy. Um, he was a partier. He smoked pot and started smoking pot. I was drinking. I was lying. I was running away from home. Like my wild just like kept escalating and my parents were like, what in the hell? What do, what do we do? Who is this kid? We don't even know what to do with her. So all they knew how to do was like lock me in my room and, and you know, tell me I was forbidden to see anyone or go anywhere. That's when I ran away. Um, 
I was living a very adult life with him. He was from a broken home. He lived with his mom and his brother. And his mom had a boyfriend and was gone all the time. And her boyfriend had a beach house and they would travel. And so we were either at his house or at his mom's boyfriend's beach house. And we'd be spending the weekend there. I mean, living like we're 25 and I was 15, 16, 17 years old, um, you know, and it was very, there was a lot of intensity. There was a lot of drama. I played games. Um, and, and looking back, I think, my gosh, like, that's what I wanted. I craved that intensity because when things were calm and quiet, I was bored. I was bored as hell. Like, I wanted action. I wanted drama. I wanted I wanted a soap opera, apparently. I mean, that's what I, like, cut my teeth on was the young and the restless. Um, so that's what I created, and it was horrible. Um, I became a liar. Um a cheater at one point, a thief. Um, like I said, there was a lot of drama, a lot of intensity. I raged just like my mother. That's all I knew how to do. Like that was what, uh, I was taught. Like, this is how you get through to men. This is how you get your point across is you turn into a raving lunatic. And so that's what I did. Um, I manipulated and played games and it was not pretty. And I, um, my disease just kept escalating. And so then when he wasn't enough and I was bored with him after this on and off chaos for six years, um, I had lost my virginity to him. He was my, my first. And, um, like within a few months I slept with like three people, like, you know, I, I just, and I see this pattern has repeated itself in my life. Um, this disease, um, of sex and love addiction always, escalates and revenge relationships became a pattern for me. Um, criminal behavior. Um, you know, I had to write about my criminal behavior in my fourth step. Um, and it, I will be really honest with you all. I trashed this guy's car because we were not in a committed relationship. Um, he was sleeping with me and also sleeping with other people. And I knew it, but I had this unrealistic expectation that he wasn't going to be sleeping with anyone else. Well, when I figured it out, I knew he loved his car and I completely trashed it in the middle of the night. Um, so criminal behavior and I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of like how psychotic I was the next day I went over and I comforted him when he was upset about his car and told him, you know, he didn't know it was me. Um, that's really sick behavior. I used to be proud of it. I used to think, you know, I'm like an Academy Award winning actress, but that's disgusting. That's really disgusting behavior. And I'm ashamed of that now. And I, um, I have that on my amends list. Um, so fast forward, I, I got married in my twenties, um, to a very emotionally immature man. I was emotionally immature as well. Um, all of my friends were getting married and I felt this anxiety that I see in a lot of young women, like, Oh my gosh, everyone's getting married. I should, I better hurry up and get married. Or I'm going to get left behind. So I married a guy I met in a bar. Um, he was in, he was a Marine. Um, he was from another state, grew up on a ranch. Now I'm from Southern California, uh, grew up in Southern California. He grew up in Wyoming on a ranch, like in the middle of nowhere. 
Um, we were from very, very, very different social, economic, every kind of background you can imagine. It was complete opposite. Um, my parents begged me not to marry him. And, um, you know, I was convinced that he was the love of my life and we were going to make this work. And I had all of these crazy, I was talking to someone the other day who was asking me about my marriage. And um, I said, you know, I have good intentions. I saw his parents and they had a very good relationship. And that's what I wanted. I just didn't know how to get it. Like, forget that he was like the wrong person. I don't know how I thought I was going to make this happen, but I, I wanted to. I wanted a healthy relationship. I just didn't know how to go about getting it. And it blew up uh, fairly quickly. We were married for four years. Um, but again, I had I manipulated him a lot. I had a lot of really unrealistic expectations for this poor guy. Um, you know, and he couldn't live up to him. And I, I belittled him like my mom belittles my dad. You know, I, um, I raged. I treated him badly. I, I treated him the way that I was taught to treat men, which is unacceptable. And I'm so glad that I understand that now um, and that I'm learning to forgive myself for my past behavior and to not repeat it again. Um, so we got divorced and that was the lowest point in my life. I was 28. I thought I was old and that my life was over. Again, very dramatic. Um, however, you know, a lot of good came out of that severe pain that I was in. I came back to my faith. Um, you know, I knew I was so depressed. I could barely get out of bed and it was the lowest point in my life. And I knew that there was nothing left for me but God. And I remember praying and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know um, how you can help me, but I don't feel like there's anything or anyone else left. I don't know what to do. So I was desperate. And I thank God for that desperation because it did bring me back to my faith. Um, I realized I didn't know my faith. And so there was a lot of work to do, um, but there was a lot of blessings. There was a big conversion and it was beautiful. And I'm really, really grateful for that time in my life. Um, I went through a little bit of a, a rocky patch because, you know, here I am now a practicing Catholic who has learned her faith. I have morals, I have values, I have certain standards that I want to live by. And my neighbor started hitting on me. Um, I'm newly divorced. I'm overweight but I just lost a lot of weight like I'd been feeling like shit about myself for a long time and this guy started showing me attention and I was like yeah no that's not gonna that's not gonna happen um and he pursued me hard and it doesn't take much for a sex and love addict as you all know <laughs> um I kept turning him down he said come on over and have some wine I'm like yeah no I'll fix you dinner yeah no I'm good and then one night when I was particularly vulnerable and I'm talking, we lived like 10 feet from each other. Our doors were not far apart. He brought me a bottle of wine and he brought me a, a gift certificate to the spa and was like, I'm sorry, you're having a bad day. Oh, that was it. I slept with him that night. <laughs> like it was done. Like my, all my morals and values out the window, like forget it. I'm going to be able to escape the pain that I'm in because that's what sex and love addiction comes down to is like, for me, I want to get out of whatever I'm feeling. And if I am in pain, I want a way to numb it, to to just get out of it quick. And 
if I can, ha- if I can use somebody, um, that just like catapults me right out of those feelings. And, you know, I can look back now and see, oh, that's what was going on. Um, I wasn't attracted to this guy particularly. I thought he was kind of sleazy, you know, and as a sex and love addict, you get less discerning about what and who you're sleeping with. You're like, well, <laughs> you know, the sex is good. So I'll just kind of like not look at him, you know, and then he wanted to be my boyfriend. And I remember saying that, no, <laughs> no, I don't want to be like, he was a secret. It was my double life. Nobody knew I was sleeping with this guy. They all were like, all oh, my newfound Catholic friends. And here I am living this double life, sleeping with my neighbor, like every chance I could get, you know, leaving work getting him to come home from work, like trying to control him in every which way. And then I got an STD from him. Um, that will never go away and it devastated me Um, and again thought my life was over I thought no one's ever gonna love me no one's ever gonna want me they're gonna be grossed out I was grossed out I was I was I was in nursing school I was starting I was working on all of my prerequisites for nursing school and I was in microbiology learning about all the STDs and here I am so you can imagine my self-talk you dumbass like you just contracted this STD and you're studying it like you should know better. So that was, um, that was, that was a rough, a really rough patch for me. It was something I kept secret. Um, even when I came in the rooms, I didn't talk about it much because there was a lot of shame and I've decided to start talking about it now because I know there are so many women, which I've discovered because I've been willing to open up who suffer with STDs from their sex and love addiction. Um, and you're not alone. You're not alone. And I've learned to live with it. Um, you know, I still haven't gotten past dating and telling somebody about it yet, but I know, um, I know I'll be able to work through it. Uh, so as I said, I was, I was working on, um, becoming a nurse. That was something that came to me. Um, as I came back to my faith, I was really discerning, like, what what do you want from me god like in this life like i was working i was had a background in um, fashion merchandising and design and i liked it i'm like is this what i'm supposed to be doing with my life i don't i don't know i met all these people in helping professions and i thought that you know i want to do something like give back and nursing came up i was terrified of it um and god made a way um and i became a nurse and it's been one of the most challenging and most beautiful um, things that I've ever been given. It's been a hell of a lot of work, but um, I'm very grateful because I would have never chosen it for myself. Um, around that same time, I was also discerning religious life. I, I think I, I wasn't thinking consciously, but I think subconsciously, oh, I know, I could go hide in a convent and never have to deal with my past or men ever again. What a perfect solution. And <laughs> thank God they said no at the last minute. They had asked me to join. I, I discerned with a couple of different orders and um, they asked me to join. I went through the whole process and it was like, I was gonna either enter nursing school or I was gonna enter the convent, one of the two. Um, and my parents were making my life so miserable because they were devastated. They were acting like I was gonna die if I entered the convent and they'd never seen me again. Um, I thank God the mother superior was like, yeah, 
we just want you to go and be free. <laughs> I think she could see I couldn't make a, I couldn't make um, a decision on my own. I wasn't free. I was living in a hostile environment. Um, so that started like this long stretch after I slept with my neighbor of 13 years of emotional and sexual anorexia. And for those of you who aren't um, familiar with that term in um, SLAA, um, it means isolating yourself from a relationship. Um, I had friends, I had plenty of friends, but I would not date. I didn't want to date. If anybody looked at me sideways, I, it would repel me. Like I wanted nothing to do with men. Um, and I put walls up because, you know, now I have an STD. I think I was afraid of who I used to be and the way I used to act. Now I'm a practicing Catholic. Like, how am I going to, I couldn't reconcile how <laughs> I could actually have a relationship and uphold my morals and values. I just didn't. I don't think I saw that that was going to be possible for me because I felt like I was broken. There was something really, really wrong with me and different. I was very other than everyone else. They, they seemed to just be able to do life a lot better than me and certainly do relationships better than me. Um, so what that looked like is that I, um, there was a lot of masturbation. Porn came into the picture. Um, I carried a lot of shame. Um, you know, I, I found a spiritual director back then and I'm so grateful for him. He is still my spiritual director to this day. Um, and he has helped me work through so, so much of my sex and love addiction. Um, because prior to coming into, into program, um, as a practicing Catholic, I go to confession once a month. So it's basically like doing a fourth and fifth step once a month and remaining accountable to my spiritual director um, and to myself and to God. And so he helped me work through it. Um, a therapist of mine actually is the one who identified it because about my mid forties, I decided, you know what? I wanna be married. I wanna have a family. Like I need to get this ball rolling. Like if I'm gonna do this, I kinda gotta get moving. So I started online dating. The first guy I went out with, um, there was a lot of electrochemistry. I mean, that is like the hallmark of a sex and love addict. Like, I swear, I felt like my skin was like tingling and on fire when I was in this guy's presence. I mean, there was just a lot of sexual chemistry. Um, I started manipulating, started playing games, you know, doing my, my old shtick. There was a lot of drama, a lot of intensity. Um, you know, we were fooling around, but I told him, I said, I, I, I want to, I don't want to have sex until marriage. And he just couldn't handle that. And he broke up with me because I wouldn't have sex with him. And that kind of triggered in me, oh, this is what, this is all I'm worth. This is all I'm good for. And if I'm not going to put out, I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. So again, went on another rampage and within like you know, a couple of months left with three different guys back to back, none of them that I was really interested in. Um, you know, and in my sex and love addiction, I can see so clearly. I remember when I first came in and they said this disease um, escalates rapidly. Um, it got more dangerous. It got more demoralizing. Um, I got a lot sicker and I increasingly, I continue to just 
increasingly compromise my values. Um, so I got to a point where I felt legitimately crazy and I went to my therapist and I said, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like my mind is, is split because on one hand, this is who I say that I am. Like these are my morals and my values. And on the other hand, this is my behavior and they don't match at all. And I'm afraid of myself and I'm afraid of what I might do next because this is getting worse and worse and worse and I don't recognize myself. And so she took out a pad of paper and we went back through every, every single relationship I've ever had. And at the end of it, she said, you know, I think you might be a love addict. And I was like, a what? <laughs> What's that? I had no idea. Um, I didn't know. So I went home and Googled it and I found SLAA and, um, I was terrified. I was so terrified to come to my first meeting. I did not want to be a sex and love addict. Um, I could only imagine who I was going to see in those rooms. You know, um, you probably have all felt the same way. Um, but I was so desperate. I was so desperate and in so much pain. And I, I am so grateful for that pain today because without it, I wouldn't be here. I would not have shown up and done this work. Um, I would not have gotten honest. Like I, I was willing to do anything. And I tell newcomers all the time, if you are in a lot of pain, thank God, thank God, because that's why you're here. Nobody wants to do this just because they're bored. Like you want to get out of whatever the hell you're in that's causing you this horrifying pain. Um, so I got honest and I got relief right away um, from the rigorous honesty in meetings. Um, I, I started attending a lot of meetings. Um, I was going like four to five times a week. I was doing a, did a year long step study. I was participating in retreats and workshops. Um, I got a sponsor right away. There were no sponsors available um, at that time where I live. And so I got a temporary sponsor. I was willing to take whatever I could get. Um, I've lost three sponsors so, so far, um, but I've always like climbed my lineage. So when I lost my sponsor, I went to her sponsor, lost that sponsor, went to the, her sponsor. And so I've been sponsored, you know, pretty similarly through the whole time. And, um, during this pandemic, I lost my last sponsor as well. Um, but God brought me a new sponsor within just a couple of days. And, um, it was because of struggle. You know, every time I'm struggling, I think, God, I just went out of this. But every time I'm in struggle, something good comes from it. And so I try to focus on what I'm, what I have to be grateful for and the gratitude from those struggles. Um, I got deep into my top line behaviors. I made a list. I've got about 50 things on my list. Um, if anybody is interested, you can, um, I'll put my phone number in the chat after I'm done and I, I can text you a list if you need any ideas. Um, I started sponsoring when I was cleared to sponsor. Um, I did lots of service. I, I held every position um, at meetings. Um, I became an intergroup rep. I, I just was like so willing to do whatever it took and I knew that my sponsors told me, do all of these things and you will stay sober. Um, and I did, and it took time. Um, if you're new, it's not uncommon for, for it to take a year for you to get some sobriety under your belt. Um, 
it took me almost a year to, to get some solid sobriety in this program. Um, I worked my tail off and like my life depended on it because it did. Um, I got into, you know, I fellowshiped after meetings, um, and I, I formed, I found who my trusted counsel was. Like we all need to know like who are our people in this program who we really trust um, and we really admire their programs. You get in with those people and you run with them and you do what they do and you ask for their input and you outreach. Um, and I also was told I had to have fun. So we would go kayaking and we'd go to movies and because it can't just all be work like we have to be balanced and we have to have fun so I scheduled fun we'd go to the beach we'd go to dinners uh, celebrate birthdays um, I have a spiritual director which I told you about um, life is good I'm, I'm learning to be more vulnerable it's a struggle for me but I'm I'm learning and I'm I'm doing it even when it's scary um, I'm learning to meet my own needs. My, my therapist, I, I see a, um, a CSAT therapist now, which is a certified sexual addiction therapist. And she has me doing some inner child work, which my eyes rolled so far back in my head when she first talked to me about doing that kind of work. I just thought it was ridiculous. But I, I see how valuable it is and how much it has helped me um, because a lot of my issues stem from not having my needs met as a child. Um, and so those needs still come up. And so I have to find ways to take care of my little girl because for whatever reason, something wasn't met. And so now I've learned how to meet my needs um, and there's not gonna be one person who meets all my needs. I have to have a lot of people in my life um, who I can go to for different things to get those needs met. I don't need to just sit and struggle on my own. Um, Gosh, I feel like I didn't think I was going to be able to talk, and here I am. I'm just rambling on. Um, I was cleared to date, like I said, uh, the day before the world shut down. I went on my first date, and <laughs> I was like, really? you got to be kidding me. Um, it was not a match, but I was so proud of myself because I showed up as a mature, responsible, emotionally sober woman, and I was honest, and I didn't overshare, and I... I was just myself. I wasn't putting on a show and I didn't need anything from him and I didn't need to prove anything. I just was honest and it felt so good. So even though it wasn't a match, I left and I felt victorious because I was like, I did it. I was a normal person on a, on a date and it was the best feeling. It was the best feeling in the world. Um, so it was, it was good. I was grateful for that. Um, so during this pandemic, I found, like I said, found Sober Sisters um, because I was in a lot of self-pity. Um, I've lost my sponsor and I lost two sponsees during this lockdown. Um, I'm a nurse and it has been, work is a pressure cooker, as you can imagine. It's been very stressful and there's a lot of fear. Um, so it's this, this last seven months have been um, really difficult, but I'm still sober. I'm still sober. And I'm using my tools. I, I'm going to be real honest with you. This has been like one of the hardest weeks for me. Um, in this whole that during this whole seven months, I've just I've been struggling with a low level of depression. Um, I just feel like stuck. I don't know what to do. I feel overwhelmed. I don't feel I just I'm restless and discontent. 
and I talked to my sponsor on Sunday and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I have to speak twice this week. I had to speak Monday and I knew I had to speak today. I'm like, I don't feel qualified in the least. I am in the worst place. And she said, you know, sometimes that's like the best place to be because people need to hear that. Like, even though you're sober, like we still live life on life's terms. Like life is not going to be perfect. Things are still going to come up. And the difference now is that I have a program, I have tools, I have people, like I know what to do. And I have to learn to sit in those uncomfortable feelings. You know, when I called her, I was like, I don't know what to do. I, I, I think I should do this, this, and this. And she's like, have you experienced these feelings before? And I said, yes. And she's like, what have you done? <laughs> and she said, you know, maybe you just need to learn to sit with that uncomfortableness. And that's part of my disease. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I, I want to feel good all the time. And that's just not life. That's not reality. Like life is there's suffering in life and it can be hard. Um, so this week I took care of myself. I just took really good care of myself. I went to, um, the progress, not perfection workshop last weekend. Um, I talked to my sponsor, I prayed alone and with others. Um, I was a speaker now twice when I didn't want to, like I took contrary action. Like that's what we do. We do things we don't want to do. Um, because why? Because it's service and it's me getting outside of myself and my self pity and for me and focusing on, you know what, maybe somebody has something that they, somebody, I have something that somebody needs to hear. Um, I went for a mental health walk. I, I call them mental health walks when I don't feel like working out. <laughs> Just go outside, go for a walk around the block if that's all you can do. Look at the trees and the butterflies and the flowers and just be in awe of, of God's creation and like stop looking at yourself and all your problems. And um, so I did that and made myself good, healthy food. I went and I bought pumpkins and mums and I decorated outside because I knew that would cheer me up. Um, I also reached out to a woman that I met this week who is a spiritual director. Um, not because I want to fire my spiritual director. I don't. He's a priest. He's a father. He's been a father figure to me and has helped me heal from a lot of my father wounds. Um, he's helped me to trust men. Um, he's helped me so much, but I've been praying and thinking about for a while. Um, you know, I wonder if there's someone else. And I met this lady and I started crying when I left. I cried the whole way home. And what came to me is like, maybe you need someone to help you start healing from some of those mother wounds. And I thought, oh, I don't want to call her. Like, it's going to be weird. And, but I called her and I cried and she was wonderful. And she's a 12 stepper. And I'm like, okay, we're done. <laughs> we're, we're done. Um, we speak the same language. And you know, she said, I would love to meet with you. And so that's me taking care of myself, advocating for myself, figuring out how to get my needs met. Um, uh, what else? I listened to recovery podcasts. Um, this week I've been listening to Sandy Beach and Joe and Charlie, who I love. If you don't know who they are, look them up. They're amazing old timers who are no longer with us in AA, um, but they have so much wisdom. Um, I don't feel strongly about dating right now, quite honestly, like it's just too weird to um, date during the pandemic. So I'm okay with taking a break. Um, 
I'm looking at possibly moving out of state. So there's a lot going on there. I have to find a job. Like there's just a lot, there's a lot going on in life. Um, and it's all good. This recent chaos has proved to me that I don't have to do anything alone. My tools work for all of my life, not just sex and love addiction. I know how to take care of myself. I'm strong and that God will never leave me. Keep coming back. Please reach out and know that you're not alone. Um, come to meetings. I know it's weird being on Zoom constantly, but just keep showing up and take care of yourself. And my prayer for you is that you get into enough pain, as weird as that sounds, because that's what will propel you and that you will be willing to do whatever it takes because this program really does work if you work it. Thank you all for letting me share. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.